Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which you found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Some great shows over there. Tech Won't Save Us. If you haven't checked them out, do so. Also, Alberta Advantage and Big Shiny Takes, which I was on at least once. All great shows. Check them out if you have not. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and we are here back with a, another special episode where we present Mitchell Beer of the Energy Mix to answer all of our energy-related questions. Thanks so much for being here, Mitchell. Thanks for having me, Stefan. So as we're you know, having a beer here, which was the <laughs> slightly altered suggested name that I received over the last month, we did receive two questions. So thanks to everyone who, who had submitted their, their questions. And as I will reference again, if you do have any questions that you would like to ask an energy expert like Mitchell, and we both have access to other people. So if you have questions that we can't answer, we will go find people who will have the answer. We will answer your questions. That's our offer to you. You can submit questions by either going to our website. There's a question box at creedmajority.ca, or you can just shoot us a, a tweet or a message in some other etherish way. We do accept carrier pigeons, presuming that they know which castle we live in. But on to the questions at hand. And there are two this week that we want to get to off the top. And the first is one that comes from a story that we covered a little bit a couple weeks ago, which is this question about Biden's pause on the LNG and the sort of cascading impacts that it might have. The specific questions that we're facing here are, what's our take on this and how does it impact BC's LNG export plans? Thanks very much for that. And before getting down to the specific question, I'm, I'm just, just over the top thrilled that we have two questions for uh, for this episode. And thanks to the listeners who sent them in. I love the idea of receiving by uh, etherish means. And if anybody does win, send, send one by a carrier pigeon around here. You you get priority. So, so you know, challenge, challenge accepted, I hope, somewhere. On LNG, this really has been the biggest or one of the biggest stories of the year so far. And it's early days yet, but it, it is, I think it's important both to recognize that this is a massive win and to recognize the limitations to that win. And you'll often hear, I guess, from the energy mix, certainly from Green Majority, that that's the nature of the climate fight. We need big wins. We need lots of them. And no single one is going to get us all the way to where we need to be. So both things are true about this one. The basic story is that the Biden White House, Joe Biden, has paused environmental approval or regulatory approval of the Calcasieu Pass or CP2 uh, LNG export terminal in Louisiana. It's a huge mega project in its own right in a part of the country along the Louisiana Gulf Coast that is already a horrific sacrifice zone for the fossil fuel industry. The decision that is made for this project, whichever way it goes, the numbers are a little bit wavy here, but it could affect anywhere between about a dozen and 16 other export terminals. So that if a climate test is applied to this project, and, and the purpose of the pause is to see how that climate test might play out, if the project is actually delayed or cancelled as a result of this, there is some possibility that it could have an impact on a bunch of other projects as well. Bill McKibben, whose name will be familiar, I'm sure, to most, if not all listeners, the founder, co-founder of 350.org, now the founder of Third Act, climate author and activist going back to the late 1980s, 
Nick Hibben says this is the biggest action a United States president has ever taken to stand up to fossil fuels. He also says that if those 17 export terminals all go through, or if they had gone through, we're not sure which way to express this yet, that those plants would have equaled the annual climate impact of every activity of every kind going on across Europe, as he says, from Athens to Helsinki. So that's how much is at stake, both in terms of the urgent need to keep these plants off the books, and also both the optic and the reality and the politics of, of, of these plants being cancelled if they are, or even if it just comes that close to it. Whatever happens here, the United States will still be by far the world's biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas and the methane impact that it implies. It will still be the world's biggest oil and gas producer because the pause doesn't affect projects that have already been approved or that are, are already under operation. But the principle here is you have to start somewhere, right? Those, those dire, dire realities are where we're at right now. And you start cutting back by cutting back. You start changing course by changing course. And a really interesting point McKibben makes is that um, this is the most important step a U.S. president has taken to stand up to fossil fuels. Previously, as we've discussed on the show, Biden has also taken the most powerful, the most aggressive steps to promote clean energy uh, through the investment, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and two or three other pieces of infrastructure legislation. A few years ago, there was a paper on the need to cut with both arms of the scissors. The idea that we need to simultaneously phase out, phase down fossil fuel production and ramp up renewables and energy efficiency. And both halves of that matter. We won't win without getting them both. And Biden has now done both. The knock on Biden when this pause was announced was that it was just an election year ploy, that he needed to regain the confidence of disillusioned youth and other climate activists who hadn't been satisfied with everything he'd done over the last four years, three and a half, four years, three years, I guess. But I think the right answer to that is, and so, so what? You say that as though it's a bad thing, first of all, that a politician would actually listen to their core constituency. I mean, I know it's weird, but it is the way it's supposed to happen. And usually if the core constituency is the fossil fuel industry, we know how that ends. So I don't know how it's a bad thing that he's actually listening to one of the audiences, one of the communities that put him in power three years ago. And taking seriously that, yes, there's an issue where we're in agreement. We need to do something about this. So the latest on this is that 23 Republican state attorneys general led, not unexpectedly, by Patrick Morrissey from West Virginia. They're challenging this in court. The CEO of Shell Oil, Yael Sawan, has been very upset that this decision will undermine investor confidence in liquefied natural gas. And once again, I mean, you, you say this like that's a bad thing. The really interesting insight from McKibben again, and he he spoke in Ottawa last last week, so you might hear a fair bit about Bill McKibben on this on this broadcast. His insight was that the organizing roots that went into the the decision on uh, Calcutta Pass began with a group of campus activists who ran a very successful fossil fuel divestment campaign through 350.org. Many of them, when they graduated, got involved with the Sunrise Movement, 
which promoted the Green New Deal as a concept that eventually got watered down into the Inflation Reduction Act, about which both things were true. It was a watered down version of the Green New Deal, and it's so much more than the U.S. had ever done before. And it's been a catalyst for just this incredible competition among countries to try to keep up on green investment and on climate transition investment, all of which helped build momentum for the declaration that we saw in December at the United Nations Climate Conference in Dubai, where for the first time ever, every country in the world, even the petrostates, agreed on language that called for a transition out of fossil fuels that Biden then quoted in his announcement about Kalkashu Pass. So it all links together. And as usual, you know, this doesn't mean we've won. It doesn't mean it's over. It means we've got a whole lot of hard work ahead. And it means we're still in this and that this is what a win looks like. Yeah. And you mentioned there a little bit about investor confidence. And the one other story that's connected to this is the fact that we here in Canada seem to still be excited to invest in LNG, given the $100 million, I believe it is, that the pension fund has considered putting in. <laughs> well, it's been interesting to see the reaction in Canada to this. And I'm sorry, you asked about this off the top, and I should, I should have answered that right from the beginning. First of all, some of the spin and the resulting news conference has been, hey, that's great. You know, 17 LNG terminals in the United States fall off the table. We have some in Canada that can fill that, fill that gap. And then the story that we did follow up with a few days after the announcement was that the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, which invests savings on behalf of about 22 million of us across the country to ensure that we'll have a safe and assured retirement, they've seen fit to put $100 million into an investment fund in the United States called Kemmeridge, which seems to be putting a lot of its so consolidated investment from CPPIB and elsewhere into um, oil and gas fracking in Texas and LNG terminals in, in Louisiana. So this definitely comes back to Canada. It definitely comes back to a bunch of LNG terminals that were proposed in British Columbia a number of years ago, most of which have been on hold. And, and you can script it. You can probably script it verbatim that there will be an attempt by the fossil industry in Canada, by the um, you know LNG proponents in Alberta and British Columbia, both provinces, to make the case that there's got to be demand coming from somewhere. What they are, I, I can't imagine how they can look away from and then look themselves in the eye when they look away from, if you'll pardon the mixed directions here. Gas demand is falling in Europe. Renewables deployment is increasing in Asia. All of the markets, most of the markets that these companies think they're going to be tap, be able to tap into are falling apart over time. In Europe, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine made it clear to most countries in the European Union that they must never again be dependent on any other country for fossil fuels, for the energy that they depend on to sustain their societies. And that includes countries that present ourselves as friendly, like Canada and the U.S. So in the short term, they'll take those supplies. You know, oil and gas demand is not going to go away overnight. It's not going to happen. However, if the conversation is about investing for 20, 25, 30 years, maybe longer, in all of this infrastructure to extract, liquefy, pipe, 
ship, reliquid, you know, regasify all the stuff that's needed to get Canadian gas overseas. Those assets, there's no way they will be needed 20 and 25 and 30 years from now. When, if you listen to the International Energy Agency, gas demand will be down 50 or 75%. And the IEA's estimates have been getting so much better lately, but they're still conservative. They're still cautious. Renewable energy deployment routinely to this day is going faster than the IEA previously projected. You know, they're hilarious graphs that show how far off they were hilarious if it weren't so serious. And they're doing their best. They're doing so much better than they were. You know, but... It's delusional to think that there will be a market for this gas over a long enough period to make these projects worthwhile. And what I really worry about is that a number of these projects are either being led by Indigenous communities in BC or have participation from Indigenous communities in BC. And I don't think any of us who were settlers get to say, oh, no, 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 don't do that. That's not good for you. That's kind of, That's a... <laughs> and that's not where I'm going. My concern is that, first of all, I can't imagine why a community would even seriously consider an option like this, a community indigenous or not, would ever consider an option like this unless they had no other option. And if that's an indigenous community, I would want to ask some pretty tough questions about how it came to be that this was the only option left for them, if that's the case. And then I would ask, okay, it looks like income now. And yeah, you need economic development right now. You need jobs right now. You need housing right down the line. Absolutely. And what happens when it collapses in 20 years? Will those jobs be transferable? Will there be something your people can do? Or has you just ended up sacrificing that future by taking the best deal you could get now? And the answers to those questions have to come from the communities. Absolutely. And I'm not particularly presuming what the answers are, except that I know we have to hit zero carbon. But yeah. it's a really cruel, complicated dilemma. And it's something I worry about a lot. And you, and you sort of see that dynamic of the answer that seemingly the, the feds, especially here, seem to have consistently about how to maneuver around sort of the land rights that exist is to sort of start claiming and start trying to create these partnerships that sort of be like, look, we're providing this economic development, but you're right. Like if you're locking these communities and people into what will be industries that sort of fall off a cliff in a couple of months or a couple of years or a couple, even, even a decade or so, you know, it's sort of like saying, oh, we can keep doing cod fishing because we've got these connections. And then knowing that you're bringing people into a, a system that will, that will collapse. Yeah. I think I think it's really important to make the point. I mean, communities are not being walked into this. They're walking themselves into it. And, sure. I, I, you know, and I'm not directly in those conversations, but of course I'll start from the assumption that they're walking in eyes wide open. Mm -hmm. I'm not questioning the judgment they've made. I'm concerned about what's down the road. Right. And the other piece of it is, yes, absolutely, there are many ways in which the federal government is pulling people into or enabling, choose your, you know, choose your frame, for these projects, there's also been massive support for Indigenous clean energy projects that have just been taken off brilliantly right across the country. And so it isn't so much that the federal government is 
pushing and prodding everybody into the fossil fuel economy. It's more that they're taking what a politician of an earlier round or generation would have called an all of the above energy strategy. And an all of the above energy strategy, I'd say, was already a little bit questionable when Barack Obama declared it. And it's been, what, let's get used to the idea that it's been 15 years since Obama was elected. Have I got my count right? Yeah. Something like that. Uh, so, yeah. So, so <laughs> it was questionable then. There's no all of the above anymore. Mm-hmm. The all of the above cannot include fossil fuels, except something that we're making our way out, except as something we're making our way out of. It cannot include these fantasy technologies like carbon capture and storage and small modular reactors that are not ready for prime time and will not be ready at scale at budget in the time frame we need them in. The all of the above needs to be solar and wind and energy efficiency and battery storage, hydro where it's usable, where it's already installed. I mean, we know the mix of things we need to do. And that's where the long-term sustained benefits are for communities, including communities that are right now dependent on fossil fuels and have a tougher road to walk and are entitled to all the rest of us listening and getting beside them and saying, okay, what's it going to take for this to work or your community? We're not going to come in from the center of the universe and pretend from Ottawa or Toronto that we know what's going to work for you in Alberta, in rural Alberta or Saskatchewan. We'd like to learn that from you and then support that. This is question number two, which is a simple one, but it was in a conversation I had with an old friend of ours who's a reporter, and she was like, I, I get a sense of I know how you know, heat pumps work, but I don't know 100%. So, Mitchell, how do heat pumps work? I love it that this question is so much gentler and more hands-on and so much more in our control, most of us, than how about that Joe Biden LNG decision? And, and you know, the first thing that comes to mind, is the way these two come together, is that we need both levels of conversation and both levels of action to make this transition happen, to make it work for all of us. The basic of how a heat pump works, and and you know, I was pretty sure I had my answer to this, but I I looked it up anyway just to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And it it really is that simple at at a basic level. That if you think of the way the compressor in your fridge extracts cold from the inside compartment to keep the food fresh and then vents the heat out. Or think of an air conditioner that extracts heat from your home or workplace um extract that heat from indoors that's what a heat pump does when it's in summer mode and then it's reversible in winter so that it will provide heating to your living or workspace in the winter time at the same time that it provides cooling cooling in the summer it will extract the heat from the air the ground of the water depending on the type of heat pump that it is and then and then pump it into the building um so that so that it you you can use it in place of whatever else you would otherwise have had to heat or cool with. What's interesting is that at a larger scale, I mean, I think most of us usually think of heat pumps as something that we'll find, you know, sort of attached attached by the side of a house. And that is happening. Heat pumps are flying off the shelves in so many parts of the country. But at a larger scale as well, there there is certainly the potential in factories and commercial buildings 
for this kind of system to capture waste heat from industrial processes and then use it for different kinds of purposes, whether it's to heat or cool nearby space. There's one data center in Lévis, Quebec, and data centers are massive users of energy. And one of their biggest challenges is to keep the space cool so that the you know, very technical term here, so that so the the hardware doesn't fry. You can tell that I'm not the hardware software specialist in our family, but there is one data center in Lévis, Quebec, that is looking at how to grow vegetables with the heat that it is taking out of the center and emitting to wherever, instead of sort of just sending out to the outside air. The idea, I think, is to pump it into a greenhouse that's either attached or nearby. One of the most important points about heat pumps is that they're incredibly efficient. The technical term is coefficient of performance, or COP, and the COP is not to be confused with the COP, which is the UN Climate Conference, and the COP actually usually works a lot better. With a COP of three, for example, a heat pump would produce three units of heat for every unit of electricity that it takes in. With a COP of five, that's five units of heat or cooling for every unit of electricity that it takes in. And a standard uh, COP for a modern heat pump is between three and five. Thanks. So that means that in contrast to the best comparison is that there are still a lot of electric baseboard heaters around because a generation or two ago, they were considered a smart way to use electricity for heating. They are so grievously inefficient. They waste so much of the energy that initially goes into the system by the time they radiate what's left as heat. Heat pumps are so much more efficient than that, and it means that you need to generate enough, generate less electricity to make them work. It means you might not need that gas-fired power plant to meet heating demand while all of us are shifting our space heating, our space cooling, our personal transportation, our transit systems, some heavier vehicles, some industrial uses, as all of that gets converted over to electricity, which it needs to be to get it off fossil fuels, the secret weapon in heat pumps is that they use that electricity so much more efficiently, which means that we'll need less of it overall to to get this job done. I haven't talked the technical details of how a heat pump works. For that, you would have needed my dad, who was a heating, ventilating, and air conditioning engineer in Montreal. And if I remember his story correctly, the year was 1963. I'm not even making that up. I was five years old and didn't know him yet because he wasn't my dad yet. Um, Ruben, uh, to his dying day, was so proud that he had designed and installed the first ever what he called a high side heat recovery unit for the open fridges that you'll see in supermarkets to make them operate more efficiently. And that was basically heat pump technology. So it's been around for a long time. It's been improved by leaps and bounds since Ruben's day. He he hated home heat pumps because in his generation, they were too expensive and they weren't reliable. Well, that isn't true anymore. And he'd be over 100 years now, old now, if he were still with us. And I don't know how I would tell him that, but he would love to see it if he could be convinced. It's so much better, but the technology goes way back. And it's more than ready for prime time. And it's something that we need right now. And I got to talk about my dad on radio. There we go. There we go. (laughs) So many wins. Amazing. So we've gone through the two questions. And so now it gets to be a chance for me to ask questions for a little bit before we we dive into this last couple of stories that you want to make sure we cover. And 
the stories that I am curious about that sort of you put forward, there's three of them, and they all, in my mind, move together in terms of helping like me and hopefully our listeners imagine what a, a net zero grid would look like. Because I think that there's a difference between imagining a net zero grid that's like exactly how we have now. And we talked about this last time on the show where you and I were talking about hard path and soft path energy systems and and what kind of changes would be necessary. But because like where the rubber hits the road, as we start actually building things out and in, in creating new supply and coming out and discovering new advantages of, of different attempts, I think it will help make it more clear as to what a zero carbon grid looks like. And there's these three stories, one about batteries, one about interties, and then sort of and then one about provincial renewable growth that I think all tie together in a way to help us imagine that sort of eventual future of a renewable grid. So let's yeah. start with the batteries one because that one is super interesting. The title is Domino Effect for Batteries Could Cut Fossil Fuel Demand in Half. Can you tell us what that's all about? So thanks. This was a summary that one of our team produced from a paper that had been produced by RMI, which is formerly known as the Rocky Mountain Institute. This is the energy transition think tank in Colorado that in many ways got this whole conversation started, as you know, in the 1970s. And they've been pushing and developing and testing and proving and encouraging and implementing this stuff ever since. What they say is that the demand for storage batteries is always, is already growing exponentially and that that's creating a domino effect where basically the more batteries sell, the more they go into use, the more demand, the, the, the more the price will fall, the more the price falls, the more demand there will be. And so the expectation demand's already been growing exponentially between 1992 and 2022, they say. But gradually, as manufacturers learn how to make them smarter, cheaper, more efficient, as manufacturing gets cheaper because they're making more of them, so the economies of scale, as the technologies themselves improve, as the batteries gain social acceptance just as people get used to them, as we learn by experience that some of the myths around batteries aren't true. As we learn how to deal with some of the challenges with batteries, and, you know, those range from when a battery does catch fire, when even a single cell inside a larger battery catches fire, it, it it's hard to put out, you know. And if you, you know, sort of imagine a pallet full of, you know, it's a pallet high of batteries in a warehouse, you know, suddenly catching fire, that's something we need to pay attention to, not to stop deploying them because all of these risks count against the risk we're facing right now today, right now today of climate change and all of the other local impacts of fossil fuels. But it's a detail we need to take care of. We need to sweat the detail. Battery repair is made very difficult right now by the way many batteries are designed. So that on one hand, you would want to just be able to repair the single cell inside a battery, inside a battery pack or the single module that, that that's failing rather than tossing and having to replace the whole thing. But many manufacturers, both battery and auto manufacturers make that harder than it needs to be. We ran a story this morning uh, that originally published uh, appeared in Grist, which is a fantastic e-digest out of uh, the United States, basically about how you know the Tesla Model S has almost become a consumer, you know, a disposable consumable, 
because if the battery dies, it's cheaper to replace the whole car, which is just ridiculous. And it's an unforced error. With batteries, we need to really pay attention to supply chains and to the critical minerals that are needed and the impact of, of extracting those critical minerals. The myth needs to be busted. The impact of critical mineral extraction is nowhere near on the scale of the impact that we're already living with from the fossil fuel industries. But just saying that and leaving it at that means that we're accepting the idea of replacing one, sec one set of sacrifice zones with another, and that shouldn't be acceptable to any of us. So again, it leads us to, we keep on going, but we do take care of the details. We make sure we do this right. So all of those details come up as batteries become more popular, become cheaper, going to wider use. One thing that RMI pointed out is that the, I was saying earlier in the show that the International Energy Agency always routinely does its best and still underestimates the speed at which this transition is taking place. And RMI has some fun graphs that show how, how badly energy and technology modelers have underestimated how quickly batteries would come on. So all of these changes are accelerating, and by accelerating, they enable the fossil fuel phase out. And what RMI concluded was that this domino effect could cut fossil fuel demand by half. In I, I don't think we actually picked up the target year for that, but soon enough to make a difference in the decarbonization challenge that we're facing. Awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, so much battery information. And I mean... I, I will say that I'm going to park this conversation about battery recycling and battery use because I I could go down that rabbit hole for another hour and I, I have all the things to get to. It's really important and there is so much. So important. Yeah. So important. But I do want to sort of round out this set of three. So the second is about interties. And so as we're building this out, we're imagining a grid now that has a bunch of batteries and that are able to, you know, manage the off-peak, on-peak things, which already reduces at least some of the need for spinning fossil fuel generators and, and most often natural gas generators. For gas-fired so, gas peakers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're sort of taken off a little bit by the increase of battery power. But there's another big problem or another big opportunity, perhaps we could say, that we will face the Canadian government, which is that... The other way to get power would also be to actually connect to each other. And that isn't really happening. So can you talk about the importance of interties between provinces and the power? This, this story has literally been going on for decades. When we ran, or I think we published a story on this a little while back, I just went to briefly try to find a sort of a historical reference for it. And it was in from the late 1990s or early 2000s. Um, there has been so much talk about how much sense it makes to increase the number and the size of the transmission lines between provinces, which is what people mean by interties. Right now, there are a lot of connections between provincial grids and other jurisdictions, but mostly they run north-south, not exclusively, but largely or mostly. And so we have this situation where if you work from, from west to east, British Columbia has lots of hydropower, although, you know, sort of put an asterisk on whether communities are accepting massive mega projects like Site C, which was incredibly controversial and rightly so, but sort of a starting point for conversation. BC has hydropower, Alberta not so much. Saskatchewan not so much, but then Manitoba has hydropower. 
And then the other, the other two cold provinces, at any rate, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, are close enough to Quebec that it's just, you know, sort of politics and interprovincial negotiations and probably personalities at some point that, that you know, stop greater, collab- greater cooperation on, on, on using those resources. So the interties are what would enable that electricity trade between provinces. Um, it's been a good idea forever. It's been incredibly difficult and controversial and for the most part unsuccessful to, to move forward on that. It gets more important for the same reason everything about the grid does, and that is that as we move from fuels to electricity, as we were saying earlier, as we electrify cars, space heating and cooling, transit, if it's not already, subways and LRTs are, are I, I guess, mostly or somewhat electrified, but electrifying everything in, in local transit systems, shift everything over to electricity so that we're not burning fossil fuels. The flexibility to be able to trade power back and forth between provinces gets that much more important. And if you look back to the grid emergency that Alberta went through in January, when temperatures suddenly plummeted, heating demand went through the roof at a time when a couple of gas plants were offline. Of course, the first thing Daniel Smith did was was blame the wind turbines because that's how she rolled, but that doesn't mean it was true. It was a combination of factors that, that led to that grid emergency. But one of them was that Alberta has relatively little ability, some ability, but relatively little to take power from other provinces that, or for that matter, U.S. states that might have a surplus. So B.C. contributed some, Saskatchewan contributed some. I think last time we talked about the very difference in tone in the press releases from B.C. and Saskatchewan that talked about that, where B.C. was talking cooperation and Saskatchewan was talking, this is the crisis Justin Trudeau created, wrongly. But the point is that more flexibility, larger interties between the provinces would have given Alberta more chance at more flexibility. And then in return, if Alberta could get its act together, to and this is about the government that is in power there and not the people who are in the province but if the provincial government get us that together and the various utility bodies could to really maximize their renewable energy capacity that's something that could conceivably be useful to the surrounding uh, provinces as well if the interties were in place when they needed it so this trading back and forth really makes everything easier if we could put it together which we haven't yet yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So we're we're coming up to about I would say ten minutes plus a music break left with the show. Yeah, we sped along. I know it's so quick. Time flies get... when you're having fun. <laughs> exactly. And what's more fun than talking about renewable energy? So very quickly, let's talk about that third point, and then we'll get to a very quick music break, and then we'll come back with your last thoughts. So the the third story is one that you also covered about the fact that the effort that we currently see and the renewable changes that we're getting from the provinces is really just scratching the surface for what the changes could be. So you can can you tell us about sure, if thanks. we're building up this story, you know, you've now got rid of the the peaker plants that are hand, handled by battery, the ups and downs that are maybe more problematic in other ways are being handled by interspecies ties, and the last thing left is to actually decarbonize the grid. And so, how would we do that? So this is about how well are we adding renewable energy capacity? How much are we adding? Are we you know, basically, are are we living up to our potential? And this was a release from the Canadian Renewable Energy Association, CanRIA. Um, they do an annual data release just to keep tabs on on how the industry has been doing. 
the amount of renewable energy installed across the country increased 11.2% last year. So, I mean, that in normal times is pretty reasonable, but we're not in normal times. We need things speeding up. And what they pointed out was that one province, Alberta, again, Alberta, accounted for 92% of the total installed capacity in 2023. But that is going to wind down gradually over the next couple of years because of this senseless six-month, seven-month moratorium that Alberta imposed on any renewable energy project over a megawatt that began last summer. It is the moratorium's due to expire at the end of this month. They're still installing because there are projects that were still in progress when the moratorium came down, but the impact is going to be felt down the line. But in 2023, Alberta accounted for 92% of the total, and the only jurisdictions that added any other new capacity at all were Saskatchewan, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. So every other province plus Nunavut just didn't make the list. There was there was no new capacity installed, and the need, the demand is there. Yeah, the demand is there, the potential is there, and it, and and it's just not happening. So a number of future procurements have been announced to different parts of the country. They would bring another 58 gigawatts, which is 58 billion watts of electricity capacity and storage onto the various provincial grids by 2035. But Ken Ria says that's still not enough to support the national and international energy transition targets that Canada has committed to, and it's not enough to support the tripling of renewable energy capacity by the end of this decade that every country, including Canada, committed to at the COP28 conference. That's COP, not COP, in in Dubai in December. So um, Canria's 2015 net zero plan calls for five gigawatts, five billion watts of new capacity per year. And that's far more than we had of last year. And they're basically saying that we need systems to move faster and get this stuff done and get investment flowing, get both public and private procurements going so that we can meet our potential. Mitchell, what do you want people to know about this month? Well, thanks, Stefan. As usual, there's way more news than we can get into 10 minutes, but there are four stories, among others, that I think maybe give the combination of good news and challenging news that we're, you know, all of us facing every day. And the first is the report that was issued last week that showed fossil fuel emissions from particularly from electricity, but fossil fuel emissions in the European Union fall into a 60 year low. That's 60, not 16. So emissions last year in the in the European Union were at the same level they were in the early 1960s. More than half of those improvements, 58% came from the electricity sector. So that really goes back to what we were talking about in the previous segment. You know, that these these really significant changes are possible 
um, in the power sector if we get serious about it. And in this case, I think to a large degree, if we're motivated. The European Union was facing a crisis that was not about climate change, but was about national security when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and then began uh, essentially trying to hold gas supplies to the rest of Europe hostage. And they all, European countries, mostly responded uh, by saying, we're never going to be this dependent on anybody's gas anywhere ever again. When you start replacing gas with renewable energy, you make your system much more secure against that kind of bullying and threat, and you make your system much lower carbon. So in 2023, the the power sector reduced its emissions 25%. And that accounted for, as I say, more than half of the of the of the of the decline over the year. But the real headline news is first of all that they are that much down that at this point their emissions are at early 1960s levels. And yet you'll hear it here every time they need even faster reductions. We all do. So they're doing great. Most recently, the EU has announced a target of a 90% emissions reduction by 2040. There is some analysis that I've just sort of skimmed, so I haven't dug into this yet, but I gather that the 90% by 2040 depends way too heavily on carbon dioxide removal um, technologies that are, are not proven and may do damage in their own right. But the overall takeaway is we all still need to move faster, but the EU is moving and taking this pretty seriously. So that would be the first. Awesome. Uh, I mean, for the sake of time, what's number two? Number two, we have Ontario, and this again is back to the grid. In the space of just about six months, more than 100,000 households have signed up for what is now Canada's largest virtual power plant. We've talked on the show about how a decarbonized grid is also a more decentralized grid, that we're moving out of this past historical grid structure where there were a few very large power plants of different types, whether they were fossil fuel, whether they were nuclear, whether they were hydro, sending power down, down a long transmission line and then from there through a distribution system and all the rest of us were at the other end of the system. It's a much more complicated system with much more opportunity to share energy back and forth and to share energy savings back and forth. So what's happening here is that, as I say, in just six months, Ontario's identified more than 100,000 households that have smart thermostats and are willing to, and being paid, to sign up for a program where when summer electricity demand hits a peak, and so this is when they'd be powering up those expensive and heavily polluting gas-fired power plants, when electricity hits a peak, they give the province the right to automatically turn up their thermostat by two degrees Celsius. I think it's for a maximum of an hour or two. So just two degrees, it's just in the in, in circumstances of greatest need. It's it's something people I gather can usually in these systems people can opt out anytime for signing up. You get a $75 prepaid credit card and then $20 per, per year for uh, for staying in. And just by doing that, by publicizing it properly, by getting the word out, by signing people up, more than 100,000 households. And when the province turned this system on and they had to activate it six times during the summer of 2023, they saved as much as 54 megawatts of electricity. So that's 54 million watts. It's, it, it's not everything we need. But it's a lot. And the capacity of the system now with the number of households involved 
is up to about 90 megawatts. So it just keeps on getting better. What's exciting about this is that basically it's an example of what we could do and just a small example of what we could do if we were really trying. Ontario is a jurisdiction that for the last, I guess, five, five and a half, six years has had an ideological objection at the political level to doing anything that favors renewable energy or energy efficiency. And yet, over the last maybe 12 to 18 months, they've been turning around on that ideology to some extent because they're learning they need to, because they're learning that the 750 plus renewable energy contracts that they canceled when they took power in 2018 are now coming back in the form of an electricity shortage that wouldn't have been as deep or might not have been there at all if they hadn't done that. So they are starting to procure renewables. They're starting to put in this kind of program is called demand response or virtual power plant. They're starting to introduce these, introduce and scale up these kinds of programs. And both things are true. It, it's really good news and good on them for doing it. And it would be polite to leave it there, but I think it also makes sense, particularly for anybody who has a vote at any level in Ontario to also say, can you imagine how much better this would be if they were actually trying it, if they really meant it? So as usual, glass half full, glass half empty, but the glass half full is pretty powerful on this one. Well, that's great. We are running even more so out of time, but you still have two more stories. You can do both. You're going to choose one. I'll start with one. You let me know All if right. I have more time after. There's a lawsuit. Oh, my God. Two lawsuits to talk about. Okay, we'll combine those two, and that'll probably be right. to the hour. Uh, yeah. Michael, Michael Mann, iconic climate scientist in the United States. He came up with what is known as the hockey stick graph. There isn't time for me to explain it, but it basically shows visually what's been happening with global temperatures over the uh, over the last thousand thousand or so years. When he first introduced this graph, he was viciously, and it turns out now, well, he was viciously attacked by climate deniers and by alt-right bloggers you know, basically saying that he was a scientific fraud and saying much worse. 12 years ago, he launched a defamation suit against them. And last night, it was announced that he had won a million dollar judgment against these clowns. They will be appealing, or at least they think we're appealing. Most of us don't find them very appealing, but he won the judgment. A jury of his peers said, no, no, you people did this with malice and you're you're going to pay. The second lawsuit, let's hope it goes as well, is that earlier this year, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, so we're back in Canada now, approved a nuclear dump site about a kilometer from the Ottawa River, so just upriver from us, frankly, where a private company is proposing to store a million tons of radioactive and other toxic waste. Community groups, indigenous communities, climate and energy and anti-nuclear groups have all been up in arms about this on the evidence that the safety measures are not right, that the permit is for 550 years, which, when many of these substances will remain radioactive and dangerous for thousands of years. So the three citizens groups announced um, on February the 8th that they're going to the fe to, to federal court to try to overturn regulatory approval of what one expert has called a glorified landfill for these radioactive wastes. I don't know what prospect they have of winning that lawsuit, but it's an issue that is really important to look at, worth reading in on. And the name of the site is, 
the near service disposal facility at Chalk River, Ontario. There's so much more to say about this one, but the top line, the breaking news is see you in court. Amazing. How better to end the segment than see you in court? (laughs) I will see you, (laughs) Mitchell Beer, next month for the Energy Mix on The Green Majority. Thank you so much. This has been Mitchell Beer. My name is Seven Hostetter. Thank you all for being here. Thank you as always, Mitchell, and have a wonderful day, everyone. It's not easy. It's not easy.